When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show for CPAs, where we're always discovering how to build better clients, a better practice, and a better life. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of the Wealth Ability Network. So lots of changes in the tax law for 2023. And uh, I, I noticed a an opinion uh, written by the Tax Foundation. I thought we'd get the Tax Foundation on the line here. And we have our, our good friend, Garrett Watson, to discuss uh, the upcoming changes um, for 2023 in the tax law and particularly how those affect uh, the, you know, the smaller businesses. So Garrett, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So um, Garrett, uh, what do you see as the maybe top three tax changes for 2023? Yeah, so uh, as we're seeing coming into 2023, there's a lot of discussion late last year, particularly at the federal level, about a lot of the tax changes that uh, were going to happen, that they were trying to uh, reverse or fix, uh, that did do come into effect. Uh, they're going to affect folks this year and, of course, going into the tax return uh, at the beginning of next year. Uh, the biggest ones, uh, particularly on the business side, that are worth mentioning, uh, a lot of them, of course, are a legacy of the 2017 tax law changes, where a lot of those tax provisions were temporary and either phased down or expire altogether between now and the end of 2025. And so uh, one uh, that's really important, uh, it's pretty broad, uh, is the uh, the phase down of bonus depreciation, which was set at 100% uh, starting in, it was actually in the fourth quarter of 2017 through the end of last year. Uh, and it's starting to phase down. It is now at 80% bonus depreciation with the balance then taken using uh, the uh, depreciation rules uh, under uh, under the law outside of bonus. Uh, and it will continue to phase down from 80% down to 60% and then 40% going down to, to zero by the end of, uh, of 2026. And so uh, that's going to have uh, a slow rolling effect, of course, on folks who have um, a lot of investment that they're deducting, uh, writing off their tax returns. Uh, the second that's uh, worth uh, mentioning uh, that has been a big part of the discussion um, that I think will continue to be part of the discussion is the uh, tighter uh, uh, limitation on uh, on interest deductions, uh, where uh, it's now set at 30% of EBIT rather than EBITDA. Uh, and of course, that's also going to, for folks who have debt financed investment, going to be uh, and uh, a topic of discussion, uh, something that was uh, folks were trying to lobby to reverse at the end of last year, but it did not get off the ground. Um, another thing that came to effect uh, last year, but still, I think, going to be 
Uh, if anything, I think a shift in expectations about where it's headed is uh, the shift from expensing of R&D to amortization. That started last year, uh, but the thought was, hey, that's actually going to be reversed and we'll be uh, it won't actually uh, be binding on tax returns that are being filed for last tax year and then for this year. But it looks like it is going to be uh, the case that we're going to be amortizing domestically uh, R&D expenses for five years or, or for 15 years for foreign R&D investment. Uh, both for last tax season and for this year. Uh, and it's really unclear whether or not that's actually going to be reversed in Congress anytime soon. So that's another one that's uh, going to be important uh, for particular business tax filers and small businesses to take advantage of those provisions. So so let, let's dig into those um, real quick. So starting with bonus depreciation, one of the big changes in 2017, not only was it going to 100% bonus depreciation, because it had been at 50, right? And, and going to 100, but also going to... Uh, applying to used property, which is what was the big issue for real estate, because most real estate, of course, uh, that changes hands is used property, not new property. And then to cover everything under 20 years and change some of the some of the years rules, we mm -hmm. had the big question on leasehold improvements, which we went back and forth, and eventually that got fixed um, retroactively. So. Um, Right now, we're in the same rules as we were last year, except we're at 80%, which means the right. other 20% is under normal depreciation, okay? And this is still just property with useful life under 20 years, right? That's right. So when it phases down, so let's talk about that phase down, because I think right now, I think as uh, CPAs, we need to pr be projecting out for our clients um, and looking at their investing. Um so when it phases down, so it phases, so next year, 2024, it's at uh, 60%, 2025, right. it's at 40%, and 2026, it's at 20%. In 2027, does it revert back to the original law, which was 50% on new? Is that what uh. it does? Uh, my, my understanding is it's actually, it, it goes down to zero. So it's actually worse treatment than it was prior to the 2017 law. So it doesn't, yeah. that, that's not a 10 year law that then reverses after 10 years, like most of the right. 2017 act. This is a 10 year law that actually effectively becomes permanent unless they do something about it. Exactly. Yeah, because for the most part, the 50% bonus and other bonus uh, provisions in the, in the past were also temporary. So to the extent that that wasn't a permanent change yet, it will all revert back to zero at the end of, of uh, this phase down. And uh, important point for us to, to notice, both for their clients and the policy side, is it's going to be worse treatment than it was even prior to the law. Interesting. Okay. So let's switch over to interest because I think that's one that is very confusing. Um, yeah. it's, it's a very confusing rule to begin with. Um, it's so confusing. I had a um, client that uh, they got audited and we asked, well, what generated this audit? Well, it was the interest limitation rules. Well, we've done that exactly right. And they gave us a no change. And yet that's what had precipitated the audit. So even the IRS was confused clearly on how their own rules worked. Um, otherwise, they would have looked at that return and said, well, yeah, they filled out the form right. This looks right. There's no reason to audit this return. Um, so t tell us how, if you can, can you explain a little bit what that rule is and um, who it applies to and then what changes for what this this really what seems to be a big change what's this big change in 2023 
Right. So uh, basically, this rule is limiting the value of, uh, of of interest payment of deducting interest payments on uh, often on debt finance investment for firms. So of course, firms have a, have a choice as to whether or not they invest uh, with with uh, equity or from uh, debt. And a big topic of discussion in the policy world, particularly during the 2017 tax law, was how do we think about the tax treatment of debt finance investment? And one way uh, to sort of balance some of those competing policy concerns that get quite wonky was we're going to still allow for deduction for interest payments on uh, debt finance investment, but uh, we're going to put a, a limitation in effect uh, to, to help limit that, especially when you combine that with expensing, because there's some questions about uh, whether or not you're subsidizing debt finance investment in that context. And so what they came up with was uh, yeah, a fairly complex scheme in which the first few years from 2018 to the end uh, uh, of last year, where you have uh, an interest deduction of up to 30% of your uh, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, uh, and amortization. Uh, and so fairly, uh, it's actually a fairly, that, that restriction is a fairly standard from an international perspective limitation. A lot of uh, uh, countries use that limitation um to to limit the value of interest deductions um but but then so uh, so, so, so that i'm clear <laughs> let me just pause make sure because i uh, you know and i've i've done these computations and yet i still find them confusing <laughs> so <clears throat> the limit is are we limiting to 30 percent of income or are we getting a 30 percent haircut on the interest so it's limited to to 30 percent of income of ebitda Okay, so 30% EBITDA, which is after depreciation and amortization, which exactly. means that it is severely reduced by even depreciation and amortization. Okay, so what's the change then for and right. now to be clear, it doesn't apply to small taxpayers, right? $25 million. Mm. Um, right. and then it doesn't apply to real estate, um, yep. uh, except for syndications, which has that yep. interesting elect out rule. Yeah, real um, estate and, and I believe finance too, and that, that's also typically normal. Um Say that again. That uh, real estate and I believe most of finance is also excluded from a lot of that because they have yeah. their own a lot of other other rules. Um, and so yeah, that that rule uh, can be complicated. Uh, it is something I think we mirror, that was mirrored off of a lot of other countries that use something similar uh, for their limitations. But we we then moved from that to something that actually is fairly unusual from an international perspective, which is an even tighter limit, which is moving from thirty percent of EBITDA to 30% of just earnings before uh, uh, interest and taxes. So just EBIT. So we're dropping the duh, if you will, the depreciation and amortization side so of things. Sorry, I'm sorry, it's early, yeah. but doesn't that increase the, the limit? If it's limited to 30% and we've increased mm -hmm. our income by eliminating depreciation and amortization, that actually increases our income. I didn't think about the the math on this, but it, it is meant to, uh, in terms of the limit, tighten the amount of interest that's actually deducted. Um, well, this, this dropping is, that depreciation. This, this, this is where I'm asking the question. Yeah, because, because depreciation and amortization are an expense. They're, mm -hmm. deduct, they're they're an expense, which means that you have lower income with them included in the computation than you have without them included in the computation. So if we're taking them out of the computation, that would actually and, and it's thirty percent of a, of earnings before income and taxes, mm -hmm. but we don't have to deduct depreciation and amortization. Doesn't that raise the amount of interest expense we can take? Uh, well, yeah. So, so again, I have to go back, but it's it's really not meant to. So, it's definitely not providing a more generous uh, deduction for sure. <laughs> so, okay. So we're gonna um, have, we're gonna have to dig into that. Yeah, um, that's something. The point here is. Um, for everyone is that we're going to have to look at those rules in great detail because you may think that you don't, 
that, that your clients don't qualify for this because they're under the $25 million test. Um, but remember, that's a moving average. That's three years of, uh, and remember also that we have to aggregate uh, controlled entities. Uh, so if we have, you know, we have um, three different businesses and they add up to 25 million, we're still subject to those limitations. So we make sure that we need to aggregate those. And then we need to look at this change. And I'm gonna have to look at this because I have not looked at this change myself. Um, and we'll have to look at how does that change in how that 30% is computed impact those clients that are impacted. That's right. right. It's, it, it's also fairly unusual, as I mentioned. So that, that that's the other thing and that there's not a lot of um, cross country or other, other uh, comparisons to look at um, to, to help folks um, from a sort of what, what this may mean, you know, for investment incentives and, and for how folks are planning. So. Got it. So um, let's, let's talk about the R and D um, uh, for a minute here. So in the past we've actually had, uh, you know, R and D, I actually have a buddy who was in Washington DC and uh, spent, spent his entire career getting the R and D credit ex extended. He was a lobbyist and got <laughs> every year got that R and D credit expended, extended because it's always been temporary, right? The R and D credit, and until 2017, rich, right, which made it permanent. And <clears throat> so now we've got something that we thought was going to be the temporary. We were putting a hold on deducting, both getting a deduction and a credit, right? And so now, beginning 2022, we either get the deduction upfront or we take the credit and amortize over five years. So um, what do you see, um, since you look at policy so much, um, and there was, uh, you know, I, th I think there's bipartisan support to reverse this, but the Democrats are basically holding a gun um, to the Republicans and say, yeah, we're not, we know this is more important to you, your constituents than it is to our constituents. At least they think that, even though that's odd because, the tech, big tech companies get a lot of R&D credit. The big pharma companies get a lot of R&D credit. They're big Democratic supporters. Um, do, you do you think this is going to get reversed retroactively? Um, like we, we've seen this in the past where we had extenders that we actually got a bill um, in the, the, the subsequent year and made it retroactive all the way back to the beginning of the law. Right. So that that was actually one of, I think, several design considerations that they never got to at the end of uh, last year in the lame duck session, which was uh, the the question of, of how do we uh, extend or reverse this uh, shift from amortization back to um, full expensing of R&D uh, expenses. And the um, one question was, in the case in the case of R and D, right, it kicked in in 2022. Do we go ahead in that year? Arguing, especially because a lot of firms had expected that this was going to be reversed anyway, making certain decisions in their planning, uh, go ahead and reverse it retroactively. Um, I, I think it was going to be easier from a, both a political and a policy perspective to have done that at the end of last year than this year. If anything, just because it it it's much more explicit that it's a retroactive change, and, and while there is some precedent in, uh, in, uh, in doing so in the extenders discussion, it is something that policymakers sometimes hesitate to do. Uh, that said, there was that discussion that never really off the ground because, of course, it was complicated by demands to uh, to make more generous uh, certain credits on the individual side that were politically dicey. So that, that's basically what complicated this, why it never actually happened in lame duck. Uh, but the other question that, that was never really got to, they'd have to figure out is, do they make this switch permanent moving forward? 
uh, which in the scoring process is more expensive than a, a temporary extension, which they were looking at either one year or even just through the end of 25, lining it up with the other individual expirations in the 2017 tax law. Uh, because that's uh, ultimately cheaper. But it comes to the trade-off of then we, we, it's sort of like Groundhog Day. We have this uh, discussion all over again in a couple of years about this particular provision that keeps coming up uh, for um, for uh, being re-extended. Uh, at this point, it's just hard to see for this session and this year an opportunity to, to, to sort of get this off the ground if there's yet still dis uh, disagreement about other provisions unrelated to this uh, discussion uh, where there's just not enough political support. So unfortunately, that means it's, it's less likely to uh, to uh, be extended in the near future. Uh, though I think our next best shot is by the end of this year, if there's another extenders discussion, we could try again um, to see uh, to see if that if that goes anywhere. Well, it's a it's it's a it's a little disconcerting just because you know when it comes to research and development tax benefits, we are not the leaders in the right. world. Um, there are many countries that have much better, uh, research and development. Uh, much of Europe has better research and development tax benefits. Uh, South Africa has 150% deduction. Mm -hmm. um, Singapore has actually for small businesses a 400% deduction. Yep. I mean, there are much better tax benefits in other countries. So it does seem to weaken the competitiveness uh, from that standpoint, but it does seem like it may be uh, at least for now, that's how we're going to be preparing the 2022 tax returns. And of course, that's what we're looking at in our mm -hmm. profession right now is 2022. It yeah. doesn't look, it looks like we're going to have to make that decision and run those numbers. Do we expense or do we take the credit and, and amortize the deduction over the next five years? Right. And then the last thing I mentioned on this too is there were some asks by um, I think the American Institute of CPAs and others to for the Treasury to issue uh, additional guidance on uh, on this switch. Um, for the most part, it is probably simpler than some of these other things we're talking about. But there still were some edge cases and question marks in the uh, even in the in the, in the statute uh, that uh, Treasury actually hasn't commented on yet. So I think we're hoping that to get more of that guidance this year, along with you know guidance that they're working on on other uh, other things. But uh, that is going to make it. That was something that should come up in some other discussions I was having. I was like, oh, that's actually a good point. There hasn't been any formal regulatory guidance or uh, other information for folks as they're they're entering into this. Right. And on on top of that, of course, the IRS is is going after claims for refund. Right. right. They're 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 going after it hard. Um, claim, getting a claim for refund uh, through the IRS is, uh, you know, as uh, about as easy as getting a deduction for a syndicated conservation easement. Um, seriously, that they're yeah. pretty much just turning them down uh, right and left. Um, so let's talk about a couple of other things. Uh, one that changed actually a couple of years ago, but it continues to um, have an impact um, on particularly business owners and real estate investors, and that is the excess business loss deduction. So where we can only offset um, non-business income by $500,000 of uh, business losses. Um, this has been extended, right, through 2008? 2000, uh, it's either 27 or 28. Yeah, and, and that's right. So that, that, was, that was part of the Inflation yep. Reduction Act. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So that this was an effort uh, in the IRA. They were looking to uh, basically close the revenue gaps they're having late in the process. And this was reintroduced. The idea being, well, this was brought in in the 2017 tax law. We'll just keep extending it. Um, I, think, I think this is actually the second time it was extended. Um, and so this is, this is something that, well, they keep going to. And 
the way we frame it is a lot of folks may want to expect that that it, it's never really going to expire because by the time we get to 27, there may yet need something else that folks will use well, it as a revenue it, source. It's effectively a minimum tax, right? Yes. They, 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 they took one minimum tax out in 2017 and replaced it with a new minimum tax. That's really all they did. That's right. Yeah. It's more comprehensive, more comprehensive minimum tax than the original minimum tax, which mm -hmm. is, which is interesting. Um, and uh, okay. So we have the excess business losses. Um, so surely you have, uh, we, we, can't have this program without talking a little bit about the Trump uh, tax returns. Um, first, first is uh, how does the Tax Foundation feel about them being released in the first place? That's a good question. And typically, I mean, historically, we have not. We tend not to try not to comment on individual returns. Obviously, this is a situation. It's a little. Uh, uh, this is uh, a policy unique. issue. Um, yes, and, and so when it, when it comes to sort of the decision to release returns. Uh, this is, you know, historically, when you look at the precedent, it's not something the IRS or Congress has taken lightly. Obviously, taxpayer privacy, uh, you know, is is um, maybe sacrosanct isn't the right the right term, but it's it is taken very seriously. And so, the decision to do this uh, really needs to be there needs to be a pretty strong policy rationale to do that. Obviously, you know, when acquiring the returns, Congress was focusing on the IRS audit program, which started under the uh, Nixon administration. The big idea there being, you know, some people ask, why, why is this even a thing? The reason why is because uh, before that, the IRS had decided whether or not they were gonna audit a sitting president, which itself is a political decision. So the idea was, we'll make it mandatory and uh, that'll take the decision out of their hands. But what we found, and I think, you know, part of that, and, and it was an interesting revelation, was maybe that program wasn't running as well as, um, as it could have. But that's actually a separate decision from publicly releasing those returns. And part of that, I think, is actually a separate decision uh, related partly, of course, in politics, but partly it's a question of, you know, should we require, you know, all presidents and presidential candidates to be transparent on their tax returns? Uh, of course, there is some legislation that has been attempted to try to do that. And there's obviously constitutional questions about that. But um, uh, I think it is an interesting um, point about whether or not there's a precedent now being set about the potential politicization of releasing tax returns on a bipartisan basis, right? And this isn't, uh, you know, targeting any particular person or, or party. Uh, and so I think that's going to be the question moving forward is what precedent does this set, it, if any, and how, will that be respected by others uh, moving forward when it comes to other folks' tax returns? Yeah. And well, and of course, Donald Trump's tax returns are a little different from Joe Biden's tax returns. You're not talking yeah. about a W-2 and a couple of uh, um, 1099s, right? You're talking about a very complicated tax return. I've been through it in, in great detail and, and you know, done some, some YouTube video, et cetera, on it. But um, one of the challenges um, from a policy standpoint is, you know, Donald Trump isn't in this, in, I mean, his tax return isn't just his tax return. It's all of his business associates and, uh, you know, any businesses. And of course, he's got hundreds, hundreds of entities and enterprises. And, you know, there's a there's very much a hierarchy, you know, holding companies and holding companies and subholding companies and so forth. And uh, I, I find it uh, curious that People think they can derive some information out of this that maybe they can't um, just because it's you have to audit the businesses. You can't. I mean, his personal tax return is almost meaningless uh, when it comes to his you know business dealings that that you'd have to go to the business tax returns. And will they require an audit of the business tax returns mm -hmm. of a sitting president where mm -hmm. he's not the only person? That's an owner of those of of those businesses. I think that is uh, to me, it's a slippery slope. 
Mm-hmm. It seems like a very slippery slope. And especially when you have, uh, you know, not too long ago, you had ProPublica release 3,000 tax returns. You had the New York Times get uh, Donald Trump's tax returns illegally. And you're going, okay, so where is the privacy with our tax returns and where is the security on the IRS? Because clearly, uh, the, has the IRS done anything in um, looking into ProPublica mm-hmm. that, that you know of? Uh, we we know that there has been some, uh, uh, apparently the Inspector General is involved, but there has been no uh, substantive um, sort of uh, revelation in that investigation. So it has, and that, that's been to the frustration of a lot of folks uh, on, the, on the Hill who want more information on that. So I, I think that is going to be, you know, as oversight sort of changes a bit this year, that's going to be a topic of discussion. And I think it's going to overlap a lot with uh, the, another main topic, of course, which is the, uh, how to think about uh, next steps on the IRS additional resources, which we're expecting that that you know plan on the additional eighty billion that's been provided uh, uh, sometime in the next month or so. And a big question is going to be, you know, if you're focusing on enforcement, uh, it's, it's also important to be focusing on taxpayer privacy and security. If you're going to have any sort of trust in the agency moving forward, and so I think that's going to be, um, if anything, this magnifies the importance of that of those discussions as well. Do you have any uh, crystal ball on that, uh, how they're going to use that $80, $80 billion? Because the Republicans would, are, are sure going to be watching over that. Of course, if they ever have a, um, uh, a functioning Republican caucus. Um, but <laughs> that's that's always a question with so so much so so much. Uh, 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 so, so, so much um, disagreement among the Republicans among themselves. But um, how do you how do you see that moving forward? Yeah, I think two, two things there. One is I think there is going to be a lot of focus on, you know, there are a lot of promises, uh, particularly informally by Treasury and the White House, that the enforcement will not have negative consequences for lower income taxpayers, particularly under 400000 There's going to be a lot of questions about how are you going to determine that? How are you going to maintain that that promise um, and and oversight uh, to ensure that's that they're being held accountable there to that promise? Uh, so I think that's going to be important. The second is there's going to be questions about the uh, how is taxpayer services uh, being prioritized relative to this, right? So we are entering into, into a new tax season. There's still, uh, as of last month, uh, a couple of reports by both GAO and the Inspector General uh, that, that looks at um, GAO and the, uh, the taxpayer advocate. Um, I mean, uh, that there still is a backlog of paper returns uh, and that they, while the situation has improved a little bit, it's still far from the promises we heard from uh, previous uh, Commissioner Chuck Reddick that they'd be caught up by the end of the year, and so uh, I, I think that's going to be the other area is um, as we still you know move out of the pandemic phase um, of their operations, uh, how are they thinking about these resources in that context? Um, because that's going to be important for a lot of folks. We're already seeing that there's going to be a promise to really raise those um, answered call rates from you know a low of a 10 percent all the way up to 85 percent potentially. It's a big promise. Uh, and how they perform in this tax season, I think, will also be another area that they'll be looking at early on to see how that's being prioritized. All right. Well, um, thank you. Any Anything else that we might have missed that uh, you see uh, happening in 2023? Yeah, so I, I think this is mostly for, of course, larger taxpayers, but it's, it's still going to be uh, important for them, for CPAs working with them. And, of course, in the policy discussion, which is we are expecting to get a lot more guidance on the Inflation Reduction Act tax increases, the minimum book tax, the stock buyback excise tax, some of these other things that um, it sounds like Treasury is having a hard time dealing with uh, the details on. We did get some initial guidance at late last uh, late last month on this. We're expecting a lot more. So we'll be covering that at Tax Foundation, and I'm sure it'll be something you all follow as well. So one, one piece of good news is the increase to the solar tax credit and um, yep. and then the expansion of the it's both an expansion and a contraction of the um, electric vehicle 
tax credit. Um, one thing that came up, which I think is a, 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 an interesting point, and I want to get your feedback on this. You know, they they put in this exception for fleets, with mm. which seems to make you believe that if you lease a, an electric vehicle, you're going to get that credit. Um, whereas if you buy it, you're not. Um, so that would be another reason. Of course, the depreciation deduction is another reason to lease a vehicle because you get the lease deduction, um, which is as, as general rule on an on a expensive car is may, way more generous than mm -hmm. the depreciation deduction. Um, so any any thoughts on those uh, those new solar or EV credits? Yeah, I think overall what you're seeing is Treasury trying to balance the a lot of this is coming from, of course, demands for producers of uh, vehicles uh, and uh, and components from other countries that may be locked out of this um, because of the both sourcing rules and and produced and assembled in America rules uh, or in, in the in the free trade zone um, that come along with this legislation. So we saw some uh, potential uh, increase in um accessibility for those uh, from the, the fleet and leasing side of things. The other thing that we're watching closely, we don't have details on, but uh, might be important in some of the treasury details is they may take a fairly expansive view on what counts as a sort of free trade agreement with the U.S., which unlocks some at least partial credits. Uh, that may, uh, they weren't very specific on the initial guidance, but it may be expensive enough to include, for example, uh, production in the uh, European Union, which uh, we don't have at this point a formal uh, free trade agreement with. So we'll be watching that too, because that may you know slowly increase sort of the um, if not the full thing, right? At least part of these credits um, for uh, for folks um, who are looking to take advantage. Interesting. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Garrett Watson. Thanks to the Tax Foundation for being our watchdogs over uh, the the tax policy up on the hill. And remember that, you know, when we have these changes, these are also opportunities. These are opportunities to better serve our clients. It's an opportunity to kind of project out to make sure that they understand what's going on and that they understand that there are still lots of tax incentives out there, lots of incentives to um, help our, you know, our, our entrepreneur taxpayers and our investor taxpayers. And when we do that, of course, we end up with better clients because they're much happier about uh, what our services are. We end up with a better practice and of course, a better life. We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.